For this very special July episode of Tuesday Night IBS podcast, we look at the battle of the IBS treatment guidelines, AGA versus ACG. This episode was taken from the Rome Foundation's Grand Round session that was in collaboration with Tuesday Night IBS. Tuesday Night IBS thanks the Rome Foundation for their partnership and for allowing us to use this episode on our podcast. This podcast episode features Dr. Douglas Drossman, Dr. Lynn Chang, who presents the AGA treatment guidelines, and Dr. Brian Lacey, who presents the ACG treatment guidelines. We hope that this provides not just information, but practical guidance on how to use these important treatment guidelines with your patients in everyday clinical management. three exceptional faculty members who are going to be bringing us this information, Dr. Brian Lacey, Dr. Lynn Chang, and Dr. Douglas Drossman. So let's go ahead and kick off with some introductions. You probably know all three of these people very well, but just in case, a reminder that Dr. Brian Lacey is a Rome Foundation board member. He is a senior associate consultant with Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and will be presenting the ACG guidelines this evening. Dr. Lynn Chang is a Rome Foundation board member and professor of medicine at the Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress, Division of Digestive Diseases, the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, and she will be presenting the AGA guidelines this evening. And of course, Dr. Douglas Strassman is President Emeritus and CEO of the Rome Foundation. He's Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Psychiatry at the UNC Center for Functional GI and Motility Disorders at the University of North Carolina. And he's also um, the president of the Center for Education and Practice of Biopsychosocial Patient Care and Drossman Gastroenterology in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So a big welcome to all three of you. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And I will now turn it over to Dr. Drossman, who will um, kick off the session. Well, thank you, Johanna. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to uh, begin by telling you what this session is about. Now we all know about AGA and ACG guidelines, but they're done in a very special way. And as clinicians, we sometimes need to modify that. So that's why we're calling this translating guidelines into clinical practice. So our objectives are to understand how these guidelines are actually developed, then to present and compare some of the key ACG and AGA guidelines, and then go beyond the guidelines to address uh, issues in clinical practice. So we're going to begin with the presentations of the guidelines by Dr. Lacey and Dr. Chang, as we heard. Then we have a few clinical considerations. Where do we extrapolate the information? What are the differences? What about IBSM, which is not covered? And then how do we prioritize treatment based on the severity of the symptoms? And then we're gonna have three, if we have the time, three very interesting case presentations that will tax our speakers. So let's um, begin and we'll turn it over to Brian for the ACG guidelines. Okay, <clears throat> welcome everybody. 
We're very excited you're here this afternoon and early evening to discuss uh, the ACG and AGA guidelines and how they're similar and how in many ways are also different. Uh, I'll briefly set the stage by talking about how the guidelines were developed. We're going to review some of the limitations of these guidelines as they apply to clinical care. I'm going to provide guideline recommendations for pharmacologic agents only. So for those of you on the line, there was a recent Rome uh, lecture series on diet. So we're not going to talk about diet tonight. And we'll discuss how guidelines should be translated into clinical care. And... Great. So the focus when we uh, prepared the ACG guidelines was to focus on really key diagnostic and therapeutic questions. And the guideline could have been 100 pages. So this was not meant to be a comprehensive review of all IBS subject areas, but rather we identified what we believed were 25 key clinical questions. And we used the PICO format, meaning population, intervention, comparator, and outcome. Nine of these questions were diagnostic in nature, which we will not cover tonight, and 16 were therapeutic. Remind, uh, it's an important reminder that algorithms are not provided in the ACG guideline, really due to lack of head-to-head -head comparisons. And I think we're all aware of that. In addition, we made a couple of recommendations about what not to do. And at least in my opinion, I think sometimes saying what not to do is almost more important about than what to do in clinical practice. So we performed a comprehensive literature uh, review dating back at least two decades decades, we focused on randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials of at least 10 subjects for a minimum of four weeks. And that's really kind of a, a minimum bar. We used a modified Delphi approach to obtain consensus, multiple meetings uh, over the course of a year and a half. And we used the grade methodology, meaning the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. And I think most of us recognize that those are really some of the most strict criteria to evaluate uh, the, the importance of a paper. Using the grade methodology, the quality of the evidence is determined and the strength of the recommendation is provided. And I'm sure many of you in the audience are quite familiar. On the left-hand side, we recommended either a strong or conditional recommendation. A strong recommendation is given as strong if most patients should receive the recommended course of action. A conditional recommendation is the strength of recommendation is conditional if many patients should have the recommended course but other patients may require individualized therapy. On the right-hand side, high quality of evidence means that new data will likely not change recommendations versus very low where the estimate of the effect is uncertain. So let's jump into this. And, oh, excuse me. Um, our first statement is actually statement 12 because we're talking about pharmacologic agents. And we recommended against the use of antispasmodics currently available in the United States to treat global IBS symptoms. And as a gentle reminder, if you haven't read the ACG guidelines, we really focused on global IBS symptoms for each PICO question. And we gave this a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. We recognize that antispasmodic agents are widely used, at least 3 million prescriptions each year in the United States. There have been 23 studies to date in uh, for IBS patients, two focused on dicyclamine, three for hyacine, and one for hyacine. But other agents studied 
are not available in the US. So we didn't focus on that. And no agent available in the United States was studied using Rome criteria. Only one study was performed in the United States looking at dicyclamine, sample size of only 71 patients, 34 patients were randomized to dicyclamine. And during this very short two-week trial, we included this because we thought it was important to understand the data that although widely used, um, pain was compared a little bit better than placebo, but almost 70% reported adverse effects. So that's why we gave it a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Our statement 13 was using, uh, we suggest the use of peppermint oil to provide relief of global IBS symptoms. And we distinguish that from smooth muscle antispasmodics. And I think Dr. Chang will talk about that difference later. We gave this a conditional recommendation again with low quality of evidence. Uh, Meta-analysis was performed and that's shown on the right-hand side of the slide with 12 randomized controlled trials involving 835 patients. And for patients with IBS and global symptoms, you were more likely to respond uh, with an improvement in IBS symptoms on peppermint compared to placebo with a relative risk of 1.78. So reasonable recommendation. We also suggested against the use of PEG products to relieve global IBS symptoms in those with IBS and constipation. And we gave that a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. We all recognize that PEG products, they're safe, they're effective for constipation, they're over-the-counter, few side effects, and they're inexpensive. And we know they help patients with chronic constipation. But if we consider global IBS symptoms, there have been two randomized controlled studies in IBS patients, and the largest was 139 patients. And the studies showed that although constipation was improved, it did not help abdominal pain, the cardinal symptom of IBS, and certainly did not help bloating, which is why we gave it a conditional recommendation. In statement 16, we stated that we recommend the use of chloride channel activators to treat global IBS-C symptoms. In uh, contradistinction to the AGA guidelines, we did separate out chloride channel activators uh, from GCC agonists. We gave this a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. Remember that lubaprostone is a prostaglandin E1 analog that binds to the type 2 chloride channels. This is approved by the FDA for the treatment of women with IBSC at eight micrograms twice daily. There were three randomized controlled trials. There was one high quality systematic review and compared to placebo, global IBSC symptoms were more likely to improve. The number needed to treat was calculated at 12.5. And we also have data from a very long open label extension study showing that benefits perceived uh, were continued for one year. Nausea can occur, but nausea is dramatically reduced by taking lubaprostone with food rather than on an empty stomach. Statement 17 speaks to the use of guanylate cyclase activators, and we gave guanylate cyclase activators, GCC agonists, a strong recommendation with high quality of evidence. And we all recognize that GCC agonists bind to the receptors on intestinal epithelial cells to stimulate intestinal fluid secretion and peristalsis. There are two FDA-approved medications, linaclotide at 290 micrograms, approved in 2012, 10 years ago, and placanotide at 3 milligrams, approved four years ago in 2018. 
For linaclotide, there were three large North American phase three uh, trials or phase 2B. And the odds of responding to linaclotide compared to placebo was 2.43 with a number needed to treat of six. Placanotide, there were also three large 2B or three studies. The odds ratio was a little bit less at 1.87, leading to a number needed to treat of nine. But again, strong recommendation, high quality of evidence for GCC agonists. What about tegacerod? Uh, and tegacerod to treat women with IBSC symptoms if you're less than 65 with one or fewer cardiovascular risk factors and you have not responded to secretagogues. And that's an important caveat here. This was given a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. We all know that serotonin plays a vital role in gastrointestinal motor and sensory function. There have been 11 randomized controlled studies looking at the efficacy of tegasrod in patients with IBS and constipation, and three pivotal studies led to FDA approval. A systematic review and meta-analysis of 11 studies involving over 9,000 IBS patients found that patients treated with tegasrod, predominantly women, uh, were more likely to respond than placebo. It does have a storied history. And since we put these slides in just a little bit ago, we need to add a little bit more to the storied history where this was approved in 2002. There was a voluntary withdrawal due to a concern about cardiovascular side effects later proved not to be true. It was reapproved in 2019. And we just learned that a few weeks ago, the commercial manufacturer has decided not to continue selling it, not for safety reasons, but really a marketing decision. Uh, if patients are still on it, they can still get it. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about IBS with diarrhea. And in statement 19, we said, we do not suggest the use of bile acid sequestrants to treat global IBSD symptoms. This is given a conditional recommendation with very low level of evidence. Certainly the theory is intriguing. We recognize that many patients with chronic diarrhea, including IBS patients, may have bile salt as a problem. But data is very limited. We have a total of 39 patients in two separate studies. And we know that bile acid sequestrants may help diarrhea, but will not help other cardinal IBS symptoms such as pain or bloating. The bottom line here is we need much better data, which is why we gave it a conditional recommendation with very low level of evidence. In statement 20, we discussed the use of rifaximin to treat global IBSD symptoms, and we gave this a strong recommendation with a moderate level of evidence. We all remember the two large RCTs, Target 1 and Target 2, published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a decade ago. Target 3 was a retreatment tr trial, um, and based on a meta-analysis of five studies, the number needed to treat was five. So you need to treat five IBSD patients to have a significant improvement in global IBSD symptoms. By the way, kind of underneath the radar, there was a nice paper published about a year ago showing that if you have a breath test positive for SIBO, you are much more likely to respond to Rifaxman. In statement 21, we discussed the use of Elocitron. We gave this a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence, and this is for IBSD and women with severe symptoms who have failed conventional therapy. And by definition, that's likely just low paramide. This is a 5-HT3 antagonist. Once again, a bit of a storied history where it was approved, then withdrawn due to concern over safety reasons, including severe constipation or possibly ischemic colitis. It was reintroduced. This is approved for women with severe IBSD. There have been two separate meta-analyses 
looking at uh, eight RCTs in one study and three RCTs in another. And certainly for women randomized to elocitron compared to placebo, they are much more likely to have a global improvement in their IBSD symptoms. An uncommon adverse effect, but everybody should be aware of it, is ischemic colitis. It's about one in a thousand patient years of exposure. By the way, prior prescribing, prescribing rules that were really very rigorous have kind of faded away. This is much easier to use. Statement 22, we discussed the use of mixed opioid agonists and antagonists, and by that, we're really discussing the use of eluxadiline. This is given a conditional recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. This is FDA approved for both men and women with IBSD. It was approved about seven years ago based on two large RCTs, including both a 26 and 50 week 52-week study. Uh, the response rate for elexadiline was about 10% higher than placebo, leading to a number needed to treat of about 10. We all recognize some safety concerns don't use in patients with alcohol abuse, those with prior cholecystectomy, or those with a history of pancreatitis or elevated LFTs. What about tricyclic antidepressants, what we now call neuromodulators to treat global IBS symptoms? We gave this a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. I think many of us in the audience are now much more comfortable using neuromodulators such as tricyclics to treat visceral and central pain. We know they may improve abdominal pain through anticholinergic effects, it may also improve mild depression. 12 RCTs were analyzed involving nearly 800 patients, um, and the relative risk of symptoms not improving on a tricyclic, which mu was much less than placebo, with a number needed to treat of 4.5, which is quite good, again, which is why it received a strong recommendation. And that's where we end up. And I'm going to turn the stage over to Dr. Lin Chang. And thank you so much for being here tonight. Before we go to that, we have uh, one quick question, Brian. Yeah. Uh, which is the NNT for Rifaximin has always been cited as 10. Where does the new NNT of five come from? So based on the, the meta-analysis and looking at global, uh, global IBSD symptoms, but you're right. So the, the, the speaker or the uh, questionnaire may be thinking too about some of the differences in therapeutic gain. Okay. It, was it also maybe including the retreatment trial, the target three? Yes. Yes, thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Yes. And and for the person who asked the question, you're right. Most of the differences were about 9 to 12% for therapeutic gain, but the new data factored in, that's why it changed. Thank you. Okay, Lynn. Yeah. So, but I do, this is a good opportunity just to remind people that you can put questions in the Q&A. Um, these are my disclosures. So I'm going to talk about the new AGA guidelines on the pharmacologic management or pharmacologic treatment of IBS with constipation or IBS with diarrhea. Uh, what's new to the gastroenterology publications for the AGA guidelines is that we had two separate guidelines, one on IBSC and one on IBSD, but instead of separately publishing the technical review from the guideline, we put everything in one document. But because there was a lot of information, uh, we separated the two bowel habit subtypes. We also had an AGA treatment guideline in 2014. So some of the treatments where there hasn't been new data, we just carried it forward and put it in, the, in this current guideline 2022. Uh, but the other ones that were new and introduced or they were updated. So for the IBSC, I'll review what our recommendations were for tenapinor, placanotide, linaclotide, lubiprostone, tegasrod, and polyethylene glycol. Uh, 
For IBSD, we looked at aloxadiline, rifaximin, alocitron, loperamide, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, and SSRIs for IBS in general. Um, it wasn't specific for a biohabit subtype. Now, we also use grade methodology, uh, but what we determined as critical and important outcomes can differ uh, from you know, the, the ACG or other um, societies. What we did as far as a critical outcome is that we use the FDA endpoint for IBS with constipation. Uh, this is the endpoint that's used for IBSC as a responder definition. Um, if a clinical trial did not have this exact endpoint because it was conducted you know, um, earlier, uh, prior to establishing this endpoint, we used a modified endpoint that was similar. But in general, the FDA requires a combination of improvement in abdominal pain and improvement of bowel habit. For IBSC, um, it's an improvement in abdominal pain, which is a decrease in weekly average worse abdominal pain in the past 24 hours of 30%. So what you want to see is a 30, at least 30% reduction in abdominal pain while on treatment compared to baseline. And you want to see it for at least 50% uh, of the weeks. The stool frequency responder definition is an increase of at least one complete spontaneous bowel movement per week from baseline. So the endpoint is that you have both of these endpoints combined in the same weeks, at least 50% of the weeks. So say at least six out of the 12 weeks in the trial. So for the IBSC guideline, the critical endpoints, then these are endpoints that were going to help us determine our recommendation. So it has to be based on whether you're going to recommend the use of this agent. So it's based on efficacy and, and safety. So we use the FDA uh, responder endpoint, which I described. The European uh, Medicine Agency has the same endpoint of a combined pain and bowel habit, but for at least 13 out of 26 weeks. So it's longer. And then undesirable outcomes, including adverse effects leading to treatment discontinuation. We also had a series of important endpoints and outcome measures like a, the individual symptoms of abdominal pain, complete spontaneous bowel movement, improvement in quality of life. And we also <clears throat> rated the agent based on minimally clinically meaningful improvement. So you may have a statistically uh, significant difference in active drug versus placebo, but what we tried to assess is that difference clinically meaningful. And our... Um, Definition is to have an improvement with the active treatment over placebo, an outcome of at least 10% or greater. And I'll explain that when I show you the confidence interval. We also <clears throat> use the, as I said, we use the grade methodology and we assess the risk of bias, inconsistency, indirect, uh, indirectness, imprecision, publication bias to formulate the overall quality of evidence. And we use the evidence to decision framework to develop the recommendations, including the quality of evidence, trade-offs of net benefits and harms, patient values, preferences, resources, and costs. And that's how the guideline recommendation uh, was determined based on these different measures. So I'm just going to show you the critical outcome measures in the interest of time. So this is tenapinor. Um, luckily, Brian has explained all the mechanism of action of these agents. As you know, this is new. You can see that the two critical outcome measures is the greater symptom improvement based on the FDA responder definition and adverse uh, events, that's diarrhea leading to treatment discontinuation. You can see the number of patients, uh, how many randomized clinical trials, and the percent 
of patients that had this endpoint. So 34.1% met the FDA endpoint for tenapenor versus 21.7% placebo. The relative risk is 0.84. Now what you'll see here is the confidence interval of that difference. It's 0.79 to 0.90. And what we were looking for for minimally clinically important difference is a number less than 0.9. So it's at least 10% uh, therapeutic gain. For the adverse events, 6.6% reported a diarrhea leading to treatment discontinuation, the tenapenor group, versus 1% the placebo group, and the relative risk is 6.27. So the question is, should tenapenor be used in patients with IBSC? The AGA gave it a conditional recommendation, uh, which is based on the uh, quality of the evidence, the safety and efficacy, and also could future studies change that recommendation? And conditional means that you may not use it in every patient, uh, and with and this had a moderate certainty of evidence. So the AJ recommends, uh, or actually it was suggests using tenapenor. It was rated down for imprecision because the confidence interval crossed the clinically meaningful difference. There was a low risk of bias. There was improvement in individual symptom and global endpoints, and diarrhea was the most common adverse event. For placanotide, which is a GCC agonist, here we have the same uh, critical outcome measures. You can see the number of patients, the number of trials. 27.4% in the placanotide group met the M FDA endpoint versus 16.9% placebo group, relative risk 0.87, and the confidence intervals 0.83 to 0.92. For diarrhea, there was a small percent of patients who had diarrhea that led to treatment discontinuation, the placanotide group, 1.2% versus 0% placebo. And you can see the relative risk of 5.68. So this was given a conditional recommendation, moderate certainty of evidence. Uh, so the AJA uh, suggests the use of placanotide in IBSC. It was rated uh, down for imprecision, uh, similar to uh, tenapenor, low risk of bias. It did show improvement in individual symptom and global endpoints, and diarrhea was the most common adverse event. Linaclotide, uh, which has been around longer as a GCC agonist for IBSC and, and chronic idiopathic constipation, again, similar endpoints. You can see uh, there's more patients uh, compared to the other uh, agents that we just discussed. 34% met the FDA endpoint of response uh, versus 18.8% uh, placebo. Relative risk is 0.81. And you can see that the confidence interval is tighter here. As, uh, for adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation, 3.4% linaclotide, 0.2% placebo, relative risk 14.9. Because of the strength of the evidence and the high certainty of evidence, this was given a strong recommendation. So in patients with IBSC, the AJA recommends using linaclotide. The FDA responder rate was clinically meaningful. There was also beneficial effects of linaclotide across all outcomes. and was very similar to uh, our prior technical review in 2014. However, there was a new RCT in Asia that we added. It was a low risk of bias, improvement in individual symptoms, and also global endpoints. Diarrhea was also the most common adverse event. Lubiprostone, uh, this had a, a smaller number of patients, as you can see here. Uh, it did not measure complete spontaneous bowel movement. So the modified FDA endpoint was adequate abdominal pain relief and spontaneous bowel movement response for at least six out of 12 weeks. 26.3% met that endpoint in lubiprostone versus 15.3% placebo. 
Relative risk was 0.88. Wider confidence interval, as you can see, 0.79 to 0.96. Uh, we looked at the greater adequate relief response as another critical outcome measure for lubroprostone. 17.9% here versus 10% placebo, relative risk 0.93. So for this um, recommendation, it was a conditional recommendation, moderate certainty of evidence. The AJ suggested the use of lubroprostone in IBSC, rated down again for imprecision. No significant differences with spontaneous bowel movements or adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation. So more data, because there wasn't that much data, we really recommended more data on the improvement in the number of spontaneous bowel movements and abdominal pain. Tegasterod, as you heard about, is a 5-HT4 agonist. Uh, we show the critical outcome measures. It's a modified responder definition. Uh, there wasn't the the information that was used for the FDA responder endpoints. So we looked at at least 30% improvement in abdominal pain and discomfort and an increase in one bowel movement, at least one bowel movement per week from baseline for at least six out of 12 weeks. With this modified responder definition, there was an efficacy of 35.1% to gasserot versus 23.4% placebo, relative risk 0.87. And here is the confidence interval 0.81 to 0.93. We also looked at adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation, as you can see here, 6.6% versus 5.1%. Then we looked at the indicated population. Those are individuals with IBSC under the age of 65 with low cardiovascular uh, risk factors. And that's the indicated population. And you can see here 6.2% of adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation in Tegasterod and 4.5% in placebo group. And here I, I should have said there's the moderate certainty of evidence I had thought in each of the tables. So there's a conditional recommendation, moderate certainty of evidence. In the pa patients with IBSC, the AJ suggests to gasrod. We did have an implementation remark that to gasrod was reapproved re for women under the age of 65 without a history of cardiovascular ischemic events. So we don't want to see any history of myocardial infarction, stroke, TIA, or angina. Again, rated down for imprecision, so it wasn't given a strong recommendation. Um, it was given conditional, low risk of bias, improvement in individual symptom and global relief, but there was no improvement in quality of life. Diarrhea and headache were the most common adverse events, and the cardiovascular risks were limited in women under the age of 65 without the history of cardiovascular ischemic events. Polyethylene glycol, there's only one study that we looked at, uh, greater symptom relief using a modified responder uh, definition. It's a four-week study, abdominal pain relief of at least 30% and at least three spontaneous bowel movements per week with an increase of one from baseline. 33% met this endpoint in PEG and 21% placebo, a relative risk 0.90. And you can see that the confidence interval crosses one. So this was given a conditional recommendation, low certainty of evidence. The data wasn't as good. The AGA did suggest using PEG. Uh, there was only one randomized control trial with serious methodologic limitations. It was not associated with significant benefit on spontaneous bowel movements or generic quality of life. Larger, higher quality studies are needed. We definitely need more data. We did suggest the use of PEG because low cost, easy access, there wasn't a significant side effects and it can improve constipation symptoms in IBSC patients. This is the summary of recommendations for IBSC. You can see that linaclotide was given a strong recommendation. The other conditional, we use the term suggests 
instead of recommends when we don't have a strong recommendation and you can see the certainty of evidence. I'm sorry about the shifting of some of these slides um, on this new template. So the um, for the IBSD, the responder definition by the FDA is that you have improvement at least 30% of worse abdominal pain um, compared to baseline. But instead of using complete spontaneous bowel movement frequency for IBS diarrhea, we use stool consistency. And you could either use a weekly response or a daily response, but you're looking for improvement in stool form and improvement in, in abdominal pain at least 50% of the time. For the outcomes assessed in IBS diarrhea, the critical endpoint was the FDA responder combined endpoint. The important um, endpoints were abdominal pain, improvement in stool consistency, improvement in IBS quality of life, urgency, bloating. Again, we use the same minimally clinically meaningful improvement. Again, we assess uh, all these different factors uh, in making the recommendation and establishing certainty of evidence. For luxatiline, uh, there were two randomized control trials. This is the greater symptom uh, relief uh, by the FDA definition seen in 27.2% oloxatiline versus 16.7% placebo, relative risk 0.88. Again, you can see the 95% confidence interval. We did look at pancreatitis and sphincter of OD dysfunction, which were serious adverse events. There were five in the luxatiline group with pancreatitis, none of placebo. Sphincter of OD, uh, there was eight cases with oloxatiline and zero cases with placebo. There was a conditional recommend, given a conditional recommendation, moderate certainty of evidence. In IBS-D, the AJA suggested use of aloxatiline, again, rated down for imprecision. There were clinically meaningful um, effects on stool consistency, urgency, low, less effect on abdominal pain. Contraindicated in patients without a gallbladder, more chance of getting pancreatitis or sphincter of OD dysfunction, or those who drink more than three alcoholic beverages per day. It's a higher risk of pancreatitis. Rifaximin, this is just for use of rifaximin. I'm gonna show you the retreatment recommendations. So for the FDA endpoint, two randomized controlled trials, target one, target two, 46.6% met that endpoint with rifaximin versus 37.4% placebo, relative risk 0.85 a 95 confidence interval here, which is wider than some of the other drugs and the certainty of evidence is moderate. It also had a greater adequate relief response of 45.54% in rifaximin versus 34.7%. So for the treatment of uh, the use of rifaximin in IBS diarrhea was given a conditional recommendation, moderate quality of evidence. The AGA suggested the use of rifaximin over no drug treatment uh, this was a recommendation from 2014, so this is the way it was worded then. Uh, overall benefits, uh, beneficial effects with little side effects, the cost of treatment may be high, and that's a consideration of using this agent. Now, we looked at that target three study for the retreatment of IBS diarrhea, and it was a different type of trial, so we, we assessed it uh, separately. One randomized control trial was 636 patients, uh, responder rate was 38.1%, rifaximin 31.5% with placebo, relative risk 0 0.90. Confidence interval, interval was 0 0.80 to 1.1. Uh, to prevent recurrence the, for the first, um, uh, when the patients responded rifaximin initially, then it was assessed, did they have recurrence in the symptoms? And if they did, they got randomized to rifaximin or placebo. 
So as far as preventing recurrence, it was seen in 17.1% in the rifaximin group versus 11.7% in the placebo group, relative risk 0.93, confidence interval 0.88 to 1. So the question is, should rifaximin be used for retreatment in patients with IBSD? So these are patients that were treated with rifaximin, but then got an increase um, in their symptoms later on. Conditional recommendation, moderate certainty of evidence, uh, AGA recommended in patients with IBS diarrhea with an initial response to rifaximin who develop recurrent symptoms, the AGA suggested retreatment with rifaximin. <clears throat> the recommendation was rated down for imprecision. There was a low risk of bias. Response rates were lower than previous trials in this retreatment trial, and rifaximin was generally well tolerated. For a low citron, uh, the adequate global response and adequate abdominal pain response is shown here at 60.1%. So that's quite high for Lucitron versus 37.5% placebo, relative risk 0.85. You can see a, a, a very tight uh, confidence interval. For greater adequate abdominal pain response, was seen in 48% in Lucitron, 30, almost 35% in placebo, relative risk 0.83. So this had a conditional recommendation to balance the safety and efficacy because there are concerns about the safety and you wouldn't use it in all patients with IBS diarrhea with moderate quality of evidence. So in IBSD, AGA suggests using elocitron. It does have overall beneficial effects in global symptoms and abdominal pain. Ischemic colitis, which was a critical outcome measure that we took into consideration was seen in one point uh, there's one case per 100, over 1,000 patient years. Constipation was considered an important outcome, 0.25 cases in 1,000 patient years. Again, the FDA approved the use in patients with severe IBS diarrhea who have failed conventional treatment and is part of a physician-based risk management program. Loperamide, very old studies looking at adequate global relief and adequate pain response. Uh, you can see the, the percentage of patients that respond with, uh, with uh, loperamide, 60% here for pain, it was 71.4%, placebo, 45.5% and 28.6%. Uh, and you can see the relative risk here. So the data looked, um, as far as the difference in loperamide placebo, looked good, but there was a lot of uh, issues with these trials with very small number of patients, was given a conditional recommendation, very low quality of evidence. However, the AJ suggested the use of loperamide over drug, no drug treatment, uh, again, rated down for imprecision, very low quality of evidence, no significant difference in spontaneous bowel movements or adverse events leading to discontinuation, a large body of indirect evidence. <clears throat> suggesting efficacy and reducing stool frequency with minimal adverse events. And that's why it was still suggested that it could be used in IBS with diarrhea. Tricyclics uh, were used. Uh, this was not IBS diarrhea, it's just IBS. Um, and uh, here you can see the greater adequate global relief in 59% in tricyclics versus almost 49% placebo relative risk was 0.67 with a confidence interval 0.54 to 0.82. This is the, the data on the adequate pain response, 67.7% uh, in TCAs versus 44.3% placebo relative risk 0.76 and adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation in 8.6% of patients on tricyclics versus 3.8% in placebo. Again, the certainty of evidence is quite low. 
So this was given a conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence, but the AJ did suggest using TCAs in patients with IBS. Um, uh, the overall quality of evidence across all critical outcomes was low. There was significant variation in the doses and populations in the studies, and the effects on IBS symptoms is independent on effects of depression. SSRIs, uh, you can see the number of trials here. There weren't that many patients compared to more of the, the recent trials. Uh, the SSRIs um, had was, was associated with greater adequate relief of global um, outcome of 55.5% versus 44.5% relative risk 0.74. And you can see the wide confidence interval. As far as pain response, it's 47% in SSRIs, 27.7% placebo. Again, a large confidence interval. Uh, we felt that the data uh, suggested that you should not use SSRIs in patients with IBS. The overall quality of evidence across all critical outcomes was very low uh, or was low. Overall, no improvement in global relief or abdominal pain. Uh, so the, and the effectiveness may depend on individual patient characteristics. There was a lot of variability in the studies. And for antispasmodics, uh, global relief was seen in 58% of patients versus 39.4% placebo relative risk 0.67. Uh, for pain response, 58.5%, this should be antispasmodics uh, versus 46% of placebo, relative risk 0.74. So there was given a conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence. The AJ suggested antispasmodics in patients with IBS. The quality of evidence was low. There were serious methodologic limitations and a possible risk of publication bias that led to the lower rating. Um, and uh, But there was greater relief of global uh, symptoms and pain improvement that was not clinically meaningful. Uh, PRN use and postprandial use was not studied, uh, but we felt that you could use it in patients, although it was a conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence. So this is the summary of recommendations in the IBSD studies, as well as just in IBS in general, all conditional recommendations with a range of very low to moderate evidence. We also developed a clinical decision support tool that you can access. Uh, we decided to put IBSC and IBSD. Uh, we tried to simplify this, where initially you would, you know, the patient uh, provider relationship is very important, important, education, reinsurance, lifestyle modifications, uh, dietary modifications like fiber and constipation group or low FODMAP in the uh, non constipated patients. You would have these first line agents for mild symptoms, so they're not really impacting the quality of life. Uh, you could target certain agents based on if you're really trying to treat mainly the diarrhea and constipation versus the abdominal pain, you could use these together as well. Then after first line with patients with moderate or more severe symptoms, you would consider using these agents in the box here and then Tegasterod as a third line agent because of the, of the limitations and the other agents here for IBS diarrhea uh, but using a losertron in patients that fail these other treatments. If the patient still had abdominal pain or they also have psychological symptoms, you could consider if you're not using a TCA to add it um, add, or add an SRI or brain gut behavior therapy um, like cognitive behavioral therapy or hypnosis. Now we did put an asterisk here. And what we mean is Depending on the patient characteristics or other multiple factors, you can determine which of these agents you would use as uh, second line treatment. 
I think that's it for me. Thank you, Lynn. Um, and we'll be going more into clinical decision-making. Uh, what happened to the slides? I wanna go back one slide. There we go. Um, well, uh, there, there's a couple of, of quick questions, Lynn, uh, not specifically medication related. Uh, one was, uh, should we worry that the use of words like conditional may prevent third-party payers from approving these medications for patients? Well, I mean, the, the, the recommendation or the suggestion, if we said to use the agent, it means you can use the agent. So really shouldn't be blocking the use of the agent. Um, and But you, you have to give that recommendation based on the balance of safety and efficacy, because that is something that as a clinician, you should decide and the patient should also know. And we have to say that there could be future evidence scientific evidence that could change that recommendation. And that's why you give it a conditional that you wouldn't use it also in every patient, but it doesn't mean that you cannot use it. You should just determine based on multiple factors, whether or not um, it should be used, but, but the insurance company should not keep you from using those agents if it's suggested to be used because it does improve some of the symptoms in IBS. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the other question was, in the L-acetylene, it looked like the relative risk for pancreatitis was negative if there were more cases in the treatment group. Was that a typo? Wait, what did you ask? The the relative risk for the pancreatitis was negative. Yeah, I think that was a typo. Yeah, um, okay. you know, having some problems with those lines. You know, the <laughs> other the other point I want to make for the antispasmodics pegs and bilateral binders, you know, it's not really approved for IBS per se. Right. Well, let's, right. So you let's, can use it. So the so for insurance coverage, you would need to put the right indication. Right. So it's not it's not also just based on the diagnosis. It's on what it's indicated for. And in that regard, um, if you look at there was general agreement between ACG and AGA, except for those three agents: antispasmodics, PEG, and bile acid binders. PEG was not studied in the. AGA, but it's part of your clinical decision tool. No, I'm sorry, the bile, the bile acid binders was included in your decision tool. Well, we wanted to use, make the, the, like we didn't look at diet, we didn't look at patient provider relationship or lifestyle modifications, but we thought those are important. It was really to, so the guidelines assess the evidence and give a recommendation. You have to use that evidence, but you have to really use your clinical expertise and your experience and multiple factors to decide what you're going to do in the clinical context. And that's the whole point of us discussing the case presentations. So this is the evidence for us to know the scientific evidence, but don't we always incorporate it with our clinical experience, the patient's clinical experience, cost, the type of insurance? There's so many other factors other than just the guideline recommendations, but at least, um, you know, uh, clinicians could know the evidence that's available currently. Right. And that's why we're going to, we're doing this session to go beyond the guidelines. Uh, Brian, do you have any comment about why ACG, ACG specifically said no? You know, and we thought we discussed this at length that 
And we thought that sometimes, again, saying something is not recommended is as important or more important than saying what is recommended or suggested. And so antispasmodics, we believed, are a good example of that. They are widely used. Generally, they're very safe. And yes, they may help some painful spastic conditions, cramps. They may help some postprandial symptoms. But when you really look at the data, when you really look at the evidence and looking at IBS and for medications available to North American providers, we thought the data was not very strong. There is better data for agents available in Europe. And so many providers use that. But if you really look at the evidence, it's not very good for global IBS symptoms. And similarly, you know, for PEG, again, that's very useful. It's safe. It's cheap. It's readily available for constipation symptoms, but it doesn't help the two cardinal symptoms of IBS, pain or bloating. And that sometimes leads to polypharmacy, which, again, is why we recommended uh, not using it. And, you know, in the real world, again, these agents could be used in combination with other agents. Uh, the guidelines are talking about single age treatment. Uh, absolutely. And we know that, you know, many of us use combination therapy uh, for any number of reasons because of side effects to medications that maybe patients used before or cost or insurance issues they can't get it. And I, I'm sure that most of the listeners tonight are very comfortable. You know, maybe somebody with IBS and constipation and a GCC agonist is not approved by their insurance company for whatever reason, or they had a side effect, polyethylene glycol could be a great choice for their constipation symptoms, recognizing you may need a an additional agent or diet for their bloating or for their pain. Uh, there is one question you should answer uh, about probiotics. It was covered, but we didn't, we didn't, we were looking at pharmaceutical agents. Uh, Brian, you want to comment about probiotics? Yes, thank you. And, and so that is in our guideline. We did cover it. And so we were not in favor of probiotics. And this is based in part on a very large meta-analysis uh, author. The first author was Alex Ford, published in American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2018, looking at 38 different probiotics. And when you look at the data as a whole, um, probiotics were barely better than placebo. And that was really carried by a couple of studies using combination probiotics. Now, we all know from patients individually, many patients individually feel better on a probiotic, especially I think for IBSD symptoms. But when you really look at the data as a whole, the data is not very strong, which is why we would recommend it against them for global IBS symptoms. Okay. Now, if there's one condition that falls through the cracks, it's IBSM. I think you all, you both know constructing a clinical trial for IBSM has yet to be accomplished. So we have to rely on clinical judgment. So let me ask you both, what do you do for someone with IBSM? Lynn, you want to start? Well, IBSM can be a range of symptoms. So I tried to, I asked them first of what's their predominant symptom pattern. And what I typically hear from patients is that they'll have a few days of constipation, which either could be no bowel movement or hard stools. And then they'll go to a day or a day, day and a half of initially form stool and then get loose watery. 
uh, they can have pain and then they get fatigued. You know, this is kind of the classic history and then they'll go back to normal and then they'll go back into this pattern. So if, it, if it's if it's a pattern like that, and, and studies have in the past have had some suggestion that the IBSM patients look a little more like the IBSC patient population. So what I usually do is try to target the constipation period of time. So you could just treat that time period and try to treat it quickly so that they don't go into this I almost feel like it's a self purging of the bowel, you know, after it's been constipated to, to the loose stools and it helps to reduce that, that day or day and a half or two days of uh, loose watery stools and pain, which is really more of the debilitating time. That's where they feel pretty bad. If it looks more like diarrhea, then I may use what I would use for diarrhea, but I have to be very careful that they don't switch to constipation. What I, what I find in IBSM patients is whatever you put them on, they, I feel like they're walking a tightrope. And they could go one side or the other. So you have to be really careful what you do. Like in a pure diarrhea patient, you have a little more buffer to treat the diarrhea or the abdominal pain, whether mixed, they could quickly go over on the other side. So you just have to be uh, careful of how you're managing their symptoms. A while ago, we did follow patients for a year and every three months looked at whether they transitioned from one to another. And you're absolutely right. IBSM and IBSC migrated back and forth, whereas the IBSD tended to stay by themselves. And, and I always remember data that you and Bill Whitehead had on the different IBS bowel habit subtypes. And you did this, I guess the Palm Pilot in the old days of daily diaries and found that patients with constipation, if they on their third consecutive day without a bowel movement is where their pain went up. And yeah. I've always remembered that. So I always try to make sure that patients could try to you know, induce a bowel movement before they get in that third day because their pain tends to go up. And I see, I've seen that clinically too. And, and to your point, do you, I think do you see people who are IBSC who have constipation and then have episodes of diarrhea. How often do you see patients with mostly diarrhea and episodes of constipation? Do you see that? Okay, so I, I think the, the key point there is that what is termed a constipation by a diarrhea patient may not be the classic um, definition of constipation where they're not having a bowel movement, you know, for a number of days or it's really hard stools. So when I always ask them, what do you mean by constipation? And often with a patient with diarrhea and a lot of us, you know, if you feel some discomfort or you, you want to get the stool out, you're used to getting the stool out and then feeling some relief. So they may feel uncomfortable, like they have to pass stool, but they're not passing stool, but it's not really constipation per se, where they're having hard stools. So first you want to just determine what do they mean by that and why are they uncomfortable? Because it could just be the visceral hypersensitivity, abdominal pain and bloating and discomfort that you really need to target. You're not trying to induce uh, more uh, diarrhea or you have to lower what they're on so they're not tending to go to constipated side. Uh, but you normally you can see that, I see the constipation periods if they're on treatment uh, that may swing them to the constipation side or they're traveling you know, people tend to get constipated. Brian, would you like to add anything? Wow, uh, so many great teaching points. So I'll be very brief. Uh, maybe make three points. One is that I've learned that many patients as they swing back and forth, um, it's because of medications. And so sometimes having people stop the medications, stop the 
polyethylene glycol, stop below paramide, and see where they settle out. Sometimes they swing to one side or the other, which allows you to focus on that. The second thing is, in the back of your mind, consider, could this be overflow diarrhea with some of these people moving back and forth? And a simple KUB assessing stool burden can be great. Uh, number three is, it is a reminder for everybody, remember that this movement between subgroups is not a warning sign. It doesn't mean you need to launch into an exhaustive and expensive course of diagnostic testing. And lastly, I like what Lynn said an awful lot. Um, when I see these patients and they talk about constipation or diarrhea, my first question after giving them time to talk, remember, don't interrupt, is to say, when you say constipation, what do you mean? Because everybody uses the term differently. So maybe just incorporate that in your routine. When you say diarrhea, what do you mean? Because everybody means something different. And then hear what they mean, hear what their story is. And keep in mind, there are some patients who call constipation abdominal discomfort and there's nothing in the rectum. And they try to, they tell the doctor they're constipated and they get these medications when really their motility could be quite normal and they have hypersensitivity. I wanna ask you both a question of something I, I did um, with a patient. So I had a patient, I have a patient with constipation, but on occasion, but she'll get some fecal incontinence. Uh, and at some looser stool. So I was trying to, and you know, her uh, anal rectal manometry and her uh, digital rectal examination was normal, but it was very hard to manage it. It kind of go to one side or the other. And so I thought about overflow that maybe she was really constipated and that she was getting the loose stool, you know, around the, around the hard stool. And uh, the KUB showed some stool, but I decided, which I don't order very often, I ordered a colon transit study, the radiopaque markers, yeah. and it was normal. And so I did, because I was trying to determine, do I need to, to improve her constipation? And that would help the, the diarrhea, but she had a normal colon transit time. Would that sway you into thinking that it wasn't an overflow incontinence um, scenario? Not necessarily. I mean, right. patients with constipation, a good group of them have normal transit, right? Yeah. And and so it doesn't necessarily sway me. I would look at how they're presenting and how often and the context with which they get the diarrhea. Uh, what they want, what they put on the uh, secretagogue at the time. Was that, a, so, was that a factor? So are you saying that patients with a fair amount of heart stool, like say in the right colon, who can get some of this overflow, you would you would still expect that they would have normal transit time in the colon? I don't think it's out of the picture. I mean, I think, I do think that we are expecting slow transit to mean right-sided hard stools, but we've actually had patients who had, you know, 50 SITS markers on a, out of 120 who did have right-sided from time to time, and, and we had to give them a purge, even with normal transit. Brian? I guess I would think um, that if if she's occasionally having some incontinence, is she just not completely emptying? You know, is there some residual in the rectum, and is there more of a pelvic floor problem that wasn't identified in anorectal manometry? And defecography may prove useful. Was there a bigger rectus seal than you could feel? Was there some prolapse? There's there something else going on where she's not completely evacuating, and then it leaks out later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's possible. All right, Let, that's good discussion. Um, let's look at 
your patient, and this will lead to our cases, do you make any priority decisions about which agents you want to use in someone who has IBS, either C or D, with more severe pain? Oh, definitely. Like, for example, with IBS-C, even though the AGA recommended or suggested the use of PEG, that was more mild symptoms where patients don't have that much pain. And because it's shown not to benefit pain. So that's why you use the evidence uh, to help guide uh, treatment. Where the GCC agonists, like linaclotide, placanotide, have better efficacy for abdominal pain. So I would, in a patient with IBSC, I would go to one of those two agents. Tenapinor also showed efficacy with abdominal pain. So that's another option as well. But I would do that in a patient who had more predominant pain. Um, I wouldn't use PEG. Uh, and uh, I also probably wouldn't use antispasmodics. I mean, that's getting into the bowel habit, but I tend to use it as needed, not as, as the main treatment for um, pain and IBSC, especially since it could be constipating. When would you add a tricyclic? If someone had predominant, if, if a patient came in, uh, if we're talking about IBSC and whatever treatment they're on, uh, they're having regular bowel movements or they're, they're pretty good, but they're still having pain or more significant bloating, then I would, I would consider adding a low-dose tricyclic like disipramine with less anticholinergic effect. They may have to raise whatever they're on. Uh, if they're on PEG, I would have switched them to placanotide or linaclotide. Uh, and just switch them off uh, a laxative. They could be on magnesium. They could be on all, all sorts of things. But if that, those agents that are on that don't help abdominal pain, I would switch them to something that would. If they're already on those agents that help abdominal pain and they don't have significant abdominal pain, then I either add behavioral therapy or a neuromodulator. And if, for IBSC, I'd probably use an SNRI or a low-dose um, secondary amine like disipramine. Uh, so yeah, the IBS diarrhea is easier because you don't, you can use these tricyclics and not worry so much about constipation because they have diarrhea. Ryan, what about someone who has more severe diarrhea? Do you prioritize whether you're going to use elocitron or elixatiline or anything else? Yeah, you know, I think um, we're going to assume the patient failed a low FODMAP diet, not unreasonable. We're going to assume they failed low paramide, not unreasonable just for diarrhea. But certainly for severe diarrhea, a woman, um, I think elocitron is a very good agent. I think there's a lot of data to support its use. We know that it helps pain. We know it helps urgency. We know it helps diarrhea. And I think that's very reasonable. And we have very good data you know, from eluxatiline, not quite as many studies showing that eluxatiline helps. And there's also the study we should highlight uh, from Darren Brenner published in the Red Journal showing that for patients who failed uh, low paramide, eluxatiline still helps because there are some people who believe eluxatiline is just kind of an expensive uh, low paramide, but it's more than that. And if I can just go back one comment too, um, one difference between the ACG guidelines and the AGA guidelines is we did not discuss tenapinor because when we started the process, all of the data was not out yet. So it's nice to see the AGA statements about tenapinor, which I think is another good option for your IBSC patients. Okay. I think we should move on because we have three cases that are quite interesting. There is one uh, question, Doug, about uh, for IBSC patients, when you start linaclotide, if they are on PEG, do you stop PEG? What do you say? Uh, well, if someone's on PEG and I want to switch them to linaclotide, 
I probably would just switch them because linaclotide is going to act pretty quickly. I don't mind them if they're still constipated. Uh, what's the pain? If they're, I guess if there's having bowel movements, uh, then I, I probably would just switch them. Um, and if I'm trying to use for pain, yeah, I probably would switch. If something, if they're on agents that they're uncomfortable getting off and I want to switch them, often I will taper down what they're on. And then I'll, I'll start the other agent and sometimes I'll go slower. So sometimes I make the switch, you know, we were lucky to have, uh, we're lucky to have samples. So I would give them different samples. And I personally with linaclotide to try to start a little lower, even though the FDA approved uh, doses to 90 micrograms for IBSC, but I just, I don't want to give them diarrhea initially. So sometimes I'll, I'll usually just stop and then add it, but sometimes I will taper down what they're on and then raise the dose of what I'm putting them on. Let's go the other way. You put them on linaclotide and they don't respond. Respond in what way? They don't have, they don't get bowel movements. They're still not going well. Well, then I have to, and you've done it for a certain period of time that you expect to see a bowel habit response. Or are you talking about abdominal pain? If you don't see a response, do you switch? Do you combine um, <clears throat> integrity? Do you, do you add PEG? I would switch to a different agent if they had no response. <clears throat> if they had a partial response, and it depends on what symptom we're talking about, then uh, that's how I try to decide. So it, it depends on the, the details of that. Okay. Brian, what's your wisdom? If you had someone on linaclotide, which is strongly recommended, they don't get a good response, what would you do next? A um, couple hopefully good teaching points. And I, I like kind of what both you and Lynn said, meaning if somebody says it's not working, your first question should be, what what isn't working? Because what they may mean is, oh, diarrhea is better or constipation is better, but the pain's not better or the pain is better and the diarrhea is okay, but the bloating's not better. So really pin them down. So let's say though, it's somebody at IBSC and they're taking their 290 of linaclotide and really having minimal response for all symptoms, then you have to decide, do you layer on, if it's more constipation issue, would you layer on Miralax or Prucalipride or do you just shift gears entirely? And maybe this person is going to respond better to placanotide as an example. We know that some people do respond to one GCC agonist, but to another. Could you even think about lubaprostone? I think many of us believe it's a little less potent, but you know, there we we don't have data saying that if you fail a GCC, you won't respond to a chloride channel activator. And I'm sure there's, there are some patients who are deficient in CLC2 channels. There are some who are deficient and don't respond to GCC agonists. And we're not quite there yet to take a sample and identify those patients. So feel free to mix and match. Feel free to augment. And we have a sodium exchange agent as well now, which we do. Absolutely. Yeah. I will add Motegrity or Procalipride even though it's indicated for CIC in a patient uh, who I have on linaclotype clanotide and it's working to some extent, I could add that for the constipation, but not for pain, for pain that you have to do something else. But I think the other important teaching point with the GCC agonist, and I think to some extent the tenapinor is you have an initial bowel habit response earlier. And then even though in the first week you may see some abdominal pain discomfort improvement, you sometimes don't see the maximal effect until like six or eight weeks. So you have to make sure that the patient understands it may take a couple months to really see the maximal effect on pain. So you don't want to take them off or consider a failure too early. Right. Very good point. Let's get to the cases because this is a nice segue to that. 
we have three cases and they're all based, we're using the multidimensional clinical profile. If you're not familiar with that, uh, I urge you to get the book. Uh, the new edition came out last year, uh, but it's based on five parameters, the Rome diagnosis, the symptom-based criteria, then modified by factors like what's the subtype for IBS? Is it post-infection? Are they FODMAP sensitive? The impact, which is a quality of life measure based on you asking them how much is their life affected? Are there psychosocial parameters like uh, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, early trauma, uh, any red flags? And then are there any, is any physiologic dysfunction in biomarkers? So we're gonna rely on that when we try to make uh, some decisions. So here's the first case. It's a 55 year old male with intermittent pain and diarrhea. So you're, you kind of know what your diagnosis is gonna be. For the last year, he has had several times a week, moderate abdominal cramps with loose watery stools and urgency without incontinence. Symptoms are associated with weakness and fatigue. It began after an E. coli infection that he acquired when vacationing. He also had a gallbladder resection three years ago. He states that stress exacerbates the symptoms and that increases his anxiety. He is married with two children and reports job-related stress. These symptoms moderately impact on daily activities and make him irritable toward family and colleagues. His laboratory studies are essentially normal, CBC, TTG, TSH, CRP, colonoscopy with biopsies looking perhaps for microscopic colitis, stool culture, calprotectin, and glucose hydrogen breath tests and lactose tolerance were normal. He's tried several diets, including a gluten-free and low FODMAP diet without effect. Low paramide, causes constipation if taken preventatively and acts too late when he has the, an acute phase. And he asks for counseling for stress management. Comments? Lynn, I'll, I'll jump in. Wow, we've, we've all seen these patients before, right? This is kind of the bread and butter what we've been doing. And I think we all would confidently make the diagnosis of IBS with diarrhea. It likely was a post-infection IBS case. Um, it may be exacerbated by his cholecystectomy. Um, we're you know, he tried a low FODMAP diet, not unreasonable. The data for the gluten-free diet, by the way, is not very good. And so now you'd have to have that nice discussion about treatment options. So I think we have a couple. Um, I might throw out, you know, would you use a gut-selective antibiotic such as rifaximin for a post-infection IBSD case? That would be a reasonable option. I might throw out the idea, could you use a bile acid sequestrant? Although I just mentioned uh, the ACG did not recommend that because it's not going to do much for pain. So you'd have to ask them what's most bothersome. Is it pain or the diarrhea? Or would a low-dose tricyclic agent, you know, a tertiary amine, uh, be very useful here? Okay. Let's look at um, his categories. He's got irritable bowel, as you pointed out, post-infection IBS with diarrhea and post-cholecystectomy. There is impact on activities. Uh, we would also add to that that he has what you would call situational and visceral anxiety, 
because when when you look at sorry um the symptoms increase his anxiety that's visceral anxiety and then he has job related stress which can affect his symptoms as well and there's no known biomarkers so you're suggesting um again you were suggesting which agent first for faximin Brian, you're on mute. Yep. Yes, I think that'd be a reasonable first option given the kind of the history about the E. coli infection, absolutely. Okay. But we don't really know that rifaximin helps post-infection diarrhea better than uh, standard diarrhea. But the trials with rifaximin, I don't think the, the majority, or we don't even know if a substantial number had post-infection IBS diarrhea. Okay. Correct. Right. The, the, the other point I would make for this patient is some patients will have GI symptoms where they'll get anticipatory anxiety or, you know, just, just understandable anxiety related to their symptoms. So we call that GI symptom related anxiety, but, but this, uh, which he, I think has, but he also has, he also reported having stress that increased his symptoms. So this is unrelated to his symptoms. And in those patients, even though rifaximin may improve their GI symptoms, you still have to layer on something to us to address the stress sensitivity of the symptoms, which rifaximin is unlikely to help with because it's a peripherally acting agent. So he has to also learn how to manage his stress better because it's affecting his GI symptoms. So adding, you know, a, you know, behavioral therapy or some other type of lifestyle modifications, re, re, you know, rethinking how his work is, you know, impacting his symptoms or his life. Um, that would be really important um, than with someone who's just in a person who's strictly getting with this history and who's strictly being treated with a peripherally acting agent. And, and a subtle point here is, if you recall, he's asking for psychologic treatment. So when it, that's, we don't see that very often. But yeah. to me, that would mean. Can you tell me why you would what you would like to go for? What are you looking? He's asking for counseling stress management. That tells us he'll be a good patient, a, a good client for therapy, and we might get a better handle on whether there are any other factors going on as well. And that can be additive to the rifaximin, right? Yeah, I, I, I would recommend the Rome Working Team report on brain-gut therapy that was published in Gastroenterology, and it, it had these nice three triangles of which patient you refer to behavioral therapy at what time. Right. And so, so individuals with predominantly psychiatric or psychological uh, disease that's now impacting symptoms, you know, you think about, uh, you know, general psychotherapy or behavioral therapy or papers of pain predominant symptoms, you do a neuromodulator, then you will layer on top brain gut therapy. I think in this, in this individual adding a treatment for his GI symptoms by adding some stress management or a brain gut behavior therapy would be a good way to go for long-term benefit. Because even if you treat their symptoms for a certain period of time, you really want to give them long-term skills to manage their symptoms so that they may not need pharmacotherapy right. or they can expand their diet, for example. That's right. Because brain gut therapy gives you the tools to continue with it after your therapy is stopped, right? Yeah, because a lot of patients don't wanna be on medications all their life. So they're looking for what, what can give them some long-term relief. Because even if they're better for a while, it would be most likely the case where they would come back at some time in the future. 
Okay, so he goes on Rifaximin. He starts okay. CBT. Okay. And he returns in one month and the diarrhea is better, but the pain and job-related stress continues. Okay. And may I just make one comment, you know, that may help many of our listeners is, you know, for many of these patients, why CBT for this or some counseling would be helpful is, you know, a lot of these patients, they start to really fixate on their urgent diarrhea. And they say, uh, I feel like I might get the urge and then I, I can't go out. Or I feel like I might get the urge and I can't get in my car to go to work or it's going to happen on the subway. And then it becomes this horrible, vicious cycle. So somebody like this might be very helpful. This patient now, okay, so the, the rifaximin help the diarrhea, pain continues, uh, and job-related stress continues. And we're assuming he started CBT. Um, He's had two since sessions. I started, I'm sorry? He's had two sessions so far. Two sessions. All right. So that's really not adequate. Um, so one is, you know, he needs to continue. He needs to do his homework. Yeah. This is a work in progress. I would encourage him. We've seen some benefit after many years of symptoms. This is great. But this is somebody, again, now where maybe you jump in and you use a low-dose tricyclic agent, a neuromodulator for pain to help with diarrhea, maybe stress, and um, use a, a tricyclic, uh, a ter excuse me, a tertiary amine, uh, amitriptyline, um, or amipramine, which will probably provide better benefit than a secondary amine. Okay. I think he probably needs some help while you're waiting for the behavioral therapy, you know, because often it could take three months, you know, usually these treatment trials are 12 weeks and they even have a, a more benefit even later, like at a year. Um, but if the pain is so bothersome or it's impacting his quality of life, then you would have to try to, um, you know, intervene with some uh, pharmacologic treatment while you wait for behavioral treatment to take effect, and then you can get, taper them off of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And here we are getting into augmentation. We're adding CBT. We're adding a tricyclic in addition to the rifaxman. Nothing wrong with that. So you do that, and he's better. Okay. Good suggestions. I That's wanna, great. I want to go to case three because we only have about 15 minutes. And I think case two is okay, but case three really gets you into um, some nice discussion. Um, yeah, so this, we also want to make sure that we have a little time just to at, wrap up any of the additional questions. Right. If we go five or 10 minutes longer, it's, it's okay. Um, let's see if we can get through the case and then take questions. Uh, we, don't, we don't, let's see if we have any questions about the first case. Well, there was a question before we started the case about uh, could uh, one add du uh, Ducalax with linaclotide for patients that just had partial response to linaclotide? What do you both do? Brian? Yeah, I mean, Ducalax, there's some data for occasional constipation. It's generally safe. Many people uh, have some benefits, but also for many people, it causes a lot of cramps and spasms and may, may really worsen pain. So I generally do not do that, I, except as really as a rescue medicine, traveling or something else. Yeah, I usually, I usually recommend if you're going to use it, maybe if you haven't had a bowel movement in three days, take it as a rescue but not on a regular basis. I mean, there was a trial that showed that on a daily use, it was beneficial uh, in CIC. 
I think it was. But the, the problem that has happened with Ducalax is that when people take it regularly, they start starting to raise the dose. I, I mean, I had a patient that was on 16 pills, a, 17 pills a day, you know. So um, there is another question, uh, the comment that CBT was the obvious choice for the last patient, along with the trial of bile acid sequestrant, so that to treat the diarrhea with a bile acid binder and then add CBT. Um, the only problem I would have with the, using bile acid initially is if, because it's not going to reduce the pain. And if pain was more predominant, then I, oh, is that, then I, I probably wouldn't use that. Oh, there's another comment, um, which gets to the point of the, quest, of the question we asked. I disagree with the need to provide symptomatic relief quickly. That's actually contraindicated in CBT. We want people to stop avoiding the sensations and instead reinterpret them. I, I think that's a good point. The basis of CBT is to think about this differently, to reframe um, their, their symptoms, the severity of their symptoms. But I want to point out, we're talking about combination treatments. This is someone who just started treatment. So it's okay to start them on a medication and then say you are in CBT and you've only had two sessions. I'd like you to continue with that. And that gives them the ability to work with the, the behavioral therapist, uh, the brain gut behavioral therapist, while we're treating them medically together. Yeah, I think this is a, is a very good point. Although most of the treatments that we use for pain, it doesn't reduce the pain right away and, and significantly. You know, it, it, it takes a little while for neuromodulase, but it depends if the patient is really bothered by it. Because, I mean, a question I would have uh, to Melissa or, or to Doug to you is that, you know, if the pain is, you know, some patients have such severe symptoms, they can't, I don't feel like they can almost focus and do the work in CPT. You know, they get overwhelmed, which is the symptom. So I'm just wondering, yeah, how, do you, comes, how do you do that? How do you do that? I agree. That? This comes in part from the psychiatric literature. When you look at effect size differences, when you do a CBT versus an antidepressant for depression in a two by two design, what you find is the combination has a greater effect size by about 15% over monotherapy. So monotherapy might be 50 or 60% effective, but in one treatment trial, uh, it was 85% effective. And I think it's the same thing here. If they're, they're struck with their symptoms and it's kind of interfering with their activities, it may interfere with the work of therapy. Uh, so that I, I would say we'd be doing both. But the primary, the doctor working with the patient has to discuss with them, we'll keep working, this takes time. Let's reevaluate this in three to four weeks rather than playing into the idea that the symptoms should get better immediately. Very okay, nuanced management. Yeah, the art. Um, okay, let's see if we can get through this. Maybe we'll go five or 10 minutes longer. Um, this is a 48-year-old high school principal with abdominal pain, bloating, and constipation. They began 10 years ago, but have been more bothersome over the past two years. It's not related to eating. Fiber supplements... Uh, used in the past worsen her symptoms. She has sharp, crampy pain two to three times a week, usually before a bowel movement, and has bloating most of the time. 
She strains to evacuate and afterwards has some relief of pain and bloating, but often feels the bowel movement uh, is incomplete. Her stools are frequently hard and pellet-like, and at times she has to manually remove the stools. She is bothered by the unpredictability of her bowel pattern and is unwilling to evacuate when she is at work or at school. She also recalls not using school bathrooms as a child. Due to these symptoms, she becomes anxious in social situations and tends to avoid them. She stays home from work five or six times a year when her symptoms are active. She denies rectal bleeding, weight loss, family history of other disease. Physical exam reveals normal vital signs, a BMI of 30, increased tension of the levator muscle when pushing to evacuate, laboratory studies and colonoscopy are normal, an abdominal x-ray shows a large fecal load. Anorectal motility testing shows dysenergic defecation, and she is unable to evacuate a 50 cc balloon. The SITSMARC study shows delayed transit with 85 of 120 markers retained over five days. In all honesty, this is, this is an overlap. This is not just IBS, but it's the kind of thing we frequently see. Would you agree? Absolutely. Brian, you want to start? Yeah, and you know, we could make this case even more uh, relevant to many of our listeners tonight by saying, and she failed Miralax, and maybe she failed Lubaprostone or uh, GCC Agnes and failed, meaning that she still had some persistent symptoms. And I think that, that there are a lot of teaching points here. One is she would meet Rome 4 criteria for IBS with constipation. Certainly, we know that symptoms are not perfect for predicting pelvic floor disorders at all. However, the need for digital stimulation and the evidence on anorectal manometry, she couldn't evacuate a balloon and there's evidence of dysenergic defecation is consistent with this overlap of IBSC and pelvic floor dysenergia, pelvic floor dysfunction, and you're gonna to need to treat them. So she needs physical therapy for one and maybe medications for the other. And she needs to understand they get treated differently. I would also maybe dig a little bit digger uh, deeper. And it's interesting that even as a child, there were issues. So did something else go on in her life? And I might at the appropriate time ask about a history of abuse, because that makes me a little concerned for this patient. But it sounds like there's a lot of stool withholding behavior and notice how it's influencing her work. And so we're going to want to try to reprogram her and get her better routines. Yes. And, and uh, early trauma is a consideration. Patients who have pelvic floor dysenergia uh, who have that early childhood avoidance tend at to have uh, a higher proportion of trauma than patients, say, with other medical conditions. Lynn, anything else before we get into Tommy, treatment? There was, there was a study that they compared um, anorectal bowel feedback and laxatives for dysenergic defecation. And in laxatives, like a 10 to 20% response those anorectal bowel feedback that had a much higher response, you know, like up to 70%. Yeah, that was so good. To, to, to keep using that type of a laxative or type of constipation agent and not addressing the pelvic floor dysfunction. I mean, you have to do both. And then if their dysenergic defecation is causing a lot of their symptoms that it improves, you could ease off on the, the medication for the constipation. That's right. Uh, if, 
possibly treating the pelvic floor disorder might lessen your need. We don't know if that slow transit is a state or a trait, so to speak. Uh, right. is, it, is, it, is it longstanding or is it resulting from the pelvic floor dysenergia? So here's the pattern, IBS with functional defecation disorder, IBSC dysenergic defecation, anticipatory anxiety, social phobia, slow transit constipation, and maybe there's more to learn here. Um, so did we decide what to use? We talked about uh, doing a biofeedback, anorectal biofeedback. How about medications? Oh, I might, uh, I'll go first. I think I might jump into a GCC agonist. Um, I'm going to assume that maybe she used some milk of magnesia or a magnesium oxide or fiber or Miralax on her own polyethylene. So I'm going to jump into a prescription medication. I'm going to let her know that it's going to take some time for the pain, that we hope to see results for the constipation better, but that she really has these two things. I'm going to really focus on the physical therapy as well. Uh, notice that, I'm sorry, I'm oh, trying to get to my case here. Darn, this thing moves too quickly. Right All right. Uh, the KUB. Yeah. Big fecal load, right? Right. Do you want to just put her on linaclotide and see how she does? or? So you're, thank you for leading the witness. So I think what Dr. Grossman is saying, do you need to get her cleaned out first? And for many patients, I think there's a large fecal load. You're doing a kind of a go lightly prep uh, to really clean them and start them fresh can be very helpful. So I think that might be a great idea. Some people just use a couple of enemas to kind of get cleaned up from below and that's enough. Um, but, but I think that might be a great idea. So let me ask you both a question. Now, if someone has pretty significant dysenergic defecation, I mean, maybe they'll do fine with the bowel prep because the stool is very loose, but I wonder if gonna, they might be more uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, if they're if they they have difficulty evacuating with the bowel prep. Right. Well, she's digitating too. She's digitating too. Right. Uh, yeah. She, she may be more more uncomfortable with the bowel prep. Yeah. So I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. And and two more quick points. And one is that there is a a little bit of data showing that somebody with significant. Uh, dyssynergic defecation because of the feedback loop to the colon may slow colon trans a little bit. And as Doug, you were pointing out, maybe is that really a true a slow transit constipation study, or is that maybe a marker of severe pelvic floor dysfunction? And, you know, if somebody suggested maybe we should use Prucalipride, a 5-HT4 agonist, that might be reasonable, but remember, it does nothing for pain. We don't have really good pain data, so I probably wouldn't start with that. So what are you doing for the IBSC? Just the uh, linaclotide after a flush or and pelvic interrectal? Get her cleaned out. I would probably do a bowel prep, get her cleaned out, refer to a really good physical therapist. And that's the key. Remember, there are wonderful physical therapists out there, but not everybody knows the pelvic floor. Make sure you find the right PT person for the right patient. Get them started on linaclotide. Set some expectations that this will take some time. She's had 10 years of symptoms. This is not going to be resolved in the next week. Okay, let me see if we have anything else. The patient calls in after one week of treatment stating she has developed frequent loose bowel movements. Okay, so two ways to think about that. And then Linda, I'll let you chime in. One is 
you know, what I might say is, wow, this is wonderful, right? You've struggled for so long with severe constipation. This is great. I know this feels weird because this is why you know, she's calling this feels weird. Um, and maybe do we need to back off on the dose of linaclotide as an example, if we started her at 290, by the way, I'm like, Lynn, I frequently start lower uh, because if people get urgent diarrhea frequently, they stop and you miss your window of opportunity. So do we back off? But in the back of my mind, I might also be thinking, is this still some overflow? Uh, could this be overflow diarrhea? And she really hasn't cleaned out. And so I might check a KUB in this patient, but I might also back off on the dose, assuming the 290 was maybe just a little bit too much and go to 145. Yeah, I do that. Sometimes I've, I've switched to, from lanaclotide to placanotide also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just once placanotide is pH sensitive versus the other one. And, you know, on occasion, you could see a difference. They'll have less loose stools. Um, but, you know, that this is all variable. But that's the other thing that, you know, you might want, we could do in her as well. All right. Excellent discussion. Let's see if we have any questions. I think we we I think we've covered everything. Any other questions? New questions? Did we answer the probiotic question about strain specific? Oh, where is that? You can uh, read the it. issue with meta-analysis and probiotics is comparing different strains altogether. The effects are strain specific, possibly looking into doing a strain specific meta-analysis. In real world uh, situation is challenging. Many patients are using or contemplating using probiotics. They're looking for our guidance. Telling them they are not in the guideline is not very helpful. Well, the AGA uh, technical review and guideline, they did look, I thought they did try to look at strain specific data. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that's what they tried to do. But they looked at all different GI disorders. And what they said about I, IBS is that based on the data, you know, it wasn't clear if they were really efficacious and that if you use probiotics, you should use it in a research setting so we can get more data. I mean, some patients do respond to probiotics, but I, I just wouldn't keep them on if they don't think it's really helping them. Because some patients tend to stay on it, even if it may not be efficacious. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm sorry, Doug, I apologize. Please go ahead. Personally, I get a little bit overwhelmed when patients come in with three or four bottles of 27 billion strains of this and that and ask me which one to use. I don't think we have any way to, to answer that. Um, you know, in a very simplistic way, Bifido is the one that seems to be lower in IBS, and that's the one that's been studied. Um, I might say use something that contains that. But then there's some evidence, as you know, that bloating could be made worse with probiotics as well. So I, I leave it up to the patient to decide if it's helping them rather than try to prescribe for them. What about you two? Yeah, you know, I think this is a great question. We could spend an hour on this. And I, I think that whoever asked the question has some very valid points. Remember that guidelines are meant to look at the data that you have and oftentimes the data is not perfect and it may not apply to every patient. This is where you use your clinical acumen. The problem with the probiotic data 
is there are multiple strains in multiple doses. Studies were in different types of patients, studies for, for different lengths of time. Uh, we know that some probiotics probably don't even get to the colon, that we're, they haven't even been tested. They may not even survive the GI tract. Many are actually dead on arrival. I think we need to know. I like the theory of probiotics. I think they do help some people. But really, if you look at the data in toto, the data is not overly impressive. But it doesn't mean it may not work for individual patients. And this is where you have that heart-to-heart conversation and review the data and discuss treatment options. Keeping in mind, though, that some probiotics can be expensive. And I think we've all had patients who are spending hundreds of dollars a month on probiotics. And if they don't provide benefit, at some point, it's you know you need to say stop, like any other medication. It's, stop. It's, it's back to not prescribing or proscribing, seeing what the patient whether the patient benefits. If it works for them, they can stay on it. Yeah, then another question is how often do you use peppermint oil? Yes. Hmm. Um, well, I'll start. Um, I, I, I use it, I tend to use it in patients who I'm treating who have episodes of flare-ups. It's kind of my flare-up medication. I don't keep them on it chronically because I, I don't have any evidence that it works as well, at least in the patients with more moderate to severe symptoms. For milder symptoms, it might be, but I generally think of it as an ad hoc treatment. Um, what do you guys think? I think you can use it both ways, but you know, in the study that uh, Bill Chase's father did many years ago on IBS diarrhea, where they have a hyper-responsive gastrocolonic response, you know, it's, uh, they have this increased colonic motility after a meal. In patients with postprandial symptoms, I think an antispasmodic or peppermint oil capsule is useful, you know, taken 30 to 60 minutes before a meal. But it, there's also, I think, some evidence that it could be effective on an ad hoc when they're having the bloating or discomfort or pain. You don't always have to have it around meals. But in patients with meal-related exacerbation symptoms, I think peppermint oil can be useful. But I think it's fine. Most patients will use it as needed. But there are some patients that like to use it regularly for a certain period of time to see if it's working. You know, in, in our armamentarium, they're the medications we use to put them on it and see how they do and adjust the medications because it takes days to weeks to work. And then we need something when they have a flare up and they're asking for something. That's where maybe we'd use the antispasmodic or the peppermint oil. Right. And we don't have great data as an example for the antispasmodics. We don't have really good data about PRN use. There is one study from Germany published years ago, but we don't have great data. And so peppermint oil, oftentimes I recommend that for kind of more of an as needed. And we have some reasonable data to show that it helps, you know, more mild spasms and cramps. I remember that study you, you had in your um, guidance of the 40 milligrams BID. That was in the 70s or early 80s. And Early 80s, 1981. Side effect. Talk about unblinding. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Two weeks, two weeks, right? Not a huge number of patients. So think about how far we've come in terms of study design where we're looking at thousands of patients, 12 to 26 weeks. You know, so just take that with a grain of salt. That's why on these guidelines, it's difficult when you're assessing a treatment trial from, you know, decades ago. Yeah. It's just, we didn't have the guidance that, you know, there wasn't guidance at that time. Yes. There's one other and, question. Oh, I was just going to jump in and say one last teaching point. I know we're running late, but Lynn, I think your point uh, that AGA made about SSRIs is really important. Remember that SSRIs, 
selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors really do not help visceral pain. They may be good for anxiety or depression, but don't help visceral pain. We didn't attack that in our guidelines, but you commented on that. And that's a good teaching point, I think, for all of us to remember. And by the way, remember when you start them, don't be surprised SSRIs cause some diarrhea in the first week. The last question here is how does an underlying neuromotor disorder like cerebral palsy impact IBS-C with slow motility and outlet dysfunction? Sure, I'll jump in. I, I think it's somebody took a great history. They've got a complicated patient, sounds like. But I, if they meet Rome 4 criteria, we don't have large studies looking at cerebral palsy patients that I would treat them similar to maybe Parkinson's or Alzheimer's patients who may struggle more with constipation. I would kind of still follow the same either IBS guidelines or CIC guidelines. I like the idea you've already, for the person who asked the question, they picked up on some pelvic floor problems. Think about multiple sclerosis patients. They oftentimes have pelvic floor problems. So this patient may need combination therapy, pelvic floor and medication, feel comfortable doing that. But uh, for the actual disease state, we don't have great studies looking at that actual disease state and one specific medication as the therapy. You know, the colon doesn't do very much. It absorbs water or doesn't. (laughs) So regardless of the diagnosis that may be affecting motility, your treatments will still be similar. There's no specificity toward whether you have Parkinson's or other neurologic conditions affecting motility. Do we have a moment just to address um, a comment about diaphragmatic breathing? Sure. So... Um, so Melissa Hunt, we had the, the comment about the, the first patient who had some improvement but still had pain and then was doing CBT for only a couple of sessions. Um, and uh, she's making the point of teaching deep diaphragmatic breathing at the first session and then also quickly teaching mindfulness and attention control and brings relief and increased perceived control. I do think that diaphragmatic breathing has a lot of benefits uh, you know, and definitely for, it's definitely, and, and, and people have to be taught how to do it properly because it's not as easy as it may initially seem to do and have to do it for a longer period of time. I think some people might do it too short, but it's the, you know, the, the, also I use it in patients with visible abdominal distension in patients who have this abdominal phrenic dysmergia uh, that can be useful in patients trying to do it before and after meals as well. That, you know, abdominal distension is really becoming very common symptom, too, in addition to trying to use diaphragmatic breathing for the other purposes that were, you know, noted. It's being, it's being used, uh, it, it increases vagal tone, um, affects parasympathetic activity, achieves a state of relaxation, may have some input on the brain-gut axis, especially if it's anxiety-driven, and uh, supergastic belching, downophrenic dysenergia, Rumination are conditions where it's used a lot, but but why not in general, if if we can engage the patient? All right. Hey, it is eight forty-five, everyone. So thank you for staying a little bit later with us. If you have any questions that um, 
we didn't get a chance to get to, please email them to me and I will share them with our faculty and get responses to you. Um, you all should have my email address. In the meantime, please join us again next month on <laughs> August the 18th when we will be um, joined by Sam Nurko and Julie Snyder from Boston Children's Hospital. And we'll be discussing pain predominant um, DGBIs in pediatric patients. So it should be another really good session. So please plan to join us then. Thanks for being with us tonight and we'll see you all real soon, everyone. Take good care. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And ask me which one to use. I don't think we have any way to, to answer that. Um, you know, in a very simplistic way, Bifido is the one that seems to be lower in IBS. And that's the one that's been studied. Um, I might say, use something that contains that. But then there's some evidence, as you know, that bloating could be made worse with probiotics as well. So I, I leave it up to the patient to decide if it's helping them rather than try to prescribe for them. What about you two? Yeah, you know, I think this is a great question. We could spend an hour on this. And I, I think that whoever asked the question has some very valid points. Remember that guidelines are meant to look at the data that you have. And oftentimes the data is not perfect and it may not apply to every patient. This is where you use your clinical acumen. The problem with the probiotic data is there are multiple strains in multiple doses, studies were in different types of patients, studies for, for different lengths of time. Uh, we know that some probiotics probably don't even get to the colon, that we're, they haven't even been tested. They may not even survive the GI tract. Many are actually dead on arrival. I think we need to know, I like the theory of probiotics. I think they do help some people, but really if you look at the data in total, the data is not overly impressive but it doesn't mean it may not work for individual patients. And this is where you have that heart-to-heart -heart conversation and review the data and discuss treatment options. Keeping in mind though, that some probiotics can be expensive. And I think we've all had patients who are spending hundreds of dollars a month on probiotics. And if they don't provide benefit at some point, it's, you know, you need to say, stop like any other medication. It's, stop. it's, it's back to not prescribing or proscribing, seeing what the patient, whether the patient benefits if it works for them, they can stay on it. Yeah, then another question is how often do you use peppermint oil? Yes. Hmm. Um, well, I'll start. Um, I, I, I use it, I tend to use it in patients who I'm treating who have episodes of flare-ups. It's kind of my flare-up medication. I don't keep them on it chronically because I, I don't have any evidence that it works as well, at least in the patients with more moderate to severe symptoms. For milder symptoms, it might be, but I generally think of it as an ad hoc treatment. Um, what do you guys think? I think you can use it both ways, but you know, in the study that uh, Bill Chase's father did many years ago on IBS diarrhea, where they have a hyper-responsive gastrocolonic response, you know, it's, uh, they have this increased colonic motility after a meal. And patients with postprandial symptoms I think an antispasmodic or peppermint oil capsule is useful, you know, taken 30 to 60 minutes before a meal. But it, there's also, I think, some evidence that it could be effective on an ad hoc when they're having the bloating or discomfort or pain. You don't always have to have it around meals. But in patients with meal-related exacerbation symptoms, I think peppermint oil can be useful. 
but I think it's fine. Uh, most patients will use it as needed, but there are some patients that like to use it regularly for a certain period of time to see if it's working. You know, in, in our armamentarium, they're the medications we use to put them on and, and see how they do and adjust the medications because it takes days to weeks to work. And then we need something when they have a flare up and they're asking for something. That's where maybe we'd use the antispasmodic or the peppermint oil. Right, and we don't have great data as an example for the antispasmodics. We don't have really good data about PRN use. There is one study from Germany published years ago, but we don't have great data. And so peppermint oil, oftentimes I recommend that for kind of more of an as needed. And we have some reasonable data to show that it helps you know, more mild spasms and cramps. I remember that study you, you had in your um, guidance of the 40 milligrams BID. That was in the 70s or early 80s. And early 80s, 1981. Side effect. Talk about unblinding. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Two weeks, two weeks, right? Not a huge number of patients. So think about how far we've come in terms of study design where we're looking at thousands of patients, 12 to 26 weeks. You know, so just take that with a grain of salt. That's why on these guidelines, it's difficult when you're assessing a treatment trial from, you know, decades ago. Yeah. It's just, we didn't have the guidance that, you know, there wasn't guidance at that time. Yes. There is one other it, question. Oh, I was just going to jump in and say one last teaching point. I know we're running late, but Lynn, I think your point uh, that AGA made about SSRIs is really important. Remember that SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors really do not help visceral pain. They may be good for anxiety or depression, but don't help visceral pain. We didn't attack that in our guidelines, but you commented on that. And that's a good teaching point, I think, for all of us to remember. And by the way, remember when you start them, don't be surprised SSRIs cause some diarrhea in the first week. The last question here is how does an underlying neuromotor disorder like cerebral palsy impact IBSC? with slow motility and outlet dysfunction? Sure, I'll jump in. I, I think it's somebody took a great history. They've got a complicated patient, sounds like. But I, if they meet Rome 4 criteria, we don't have large studies looking at cerebral palsy patients that I would treat them similar to maybe Parkinson's or Alzheimer's patients who may struggle more with constipation. I would kind of still follow the same either IBS guidelines or CIC guidelines. I like the idea you've already, for the person who asked the question, they picked up on some pelvic floor problems. Think about multiple sclerosis patients. They oftentimes have pelvic floor problems. So this patient may need combination therapy, pelvic floor and medication, feel comfortable doing that. But uh, for the actual disease state, we don't have great studies looking at that actual disease state and one specific medication as the therapy. You know, the colon doesn't do very much. It absorbs water or doesn't. <laughs> So regardless of the diagnosis that may be affecting motility, your treatments will still be similar. It's, there's no specificity toward whether you have Parkinson's or other neurologic conditions affecting motility. Do we have a moment just to address um, a comment about diaphragmatic breathing? Sure. So, um, so Melissa Hunt, we had the, the comment about the, the first patient who had some improvement but still had pain and was doing CBT for only a couple of sessions. Um, and she's making the point of teaching deep diaphragmatic breathing at the first session, and then also quickly teaching mindfulness and attention control and brings relief and increased perceived control. 
I do think that diaphragmatic breathing has a lot of benefits, uh, you know, and definitely for, it's definitely, and, and, and people have to be taught how to do it properly because it's not as easy as it may initially seem to do and have to do it for a longer period of time. I think some people might do it too short, but it's the, you know, the, the, also I use it in patients with visible abdominal distension in patients who have this abdominal phrenic dysmergia. Uh, that can be useful in patients trying to do it before and after meals as well. And that, you know, abdominal distension is really becoming very common symptom too, in addition to trying to use diaphragmatic breathing for the other purposes that were, you know, noted. It's being, it's being used, uh, it, it increases vagal tone, um, affects parasympathetic activity, achieves a state of relaxation, may have some input on the brain gut axis especially if it's anxiety driven and uh, supergastic belching, downophrenic dysenergia, rumination are conditions where it's used a lot. But, but why not in general, if, if we can engage the patient? All right. Hey, it is 8.45, everyone. So thank you for staying a little bit later with us. If you have any questions that um, we didn't get a chance to get to, please email them to me and I will share them with our faculty and get responses to you. Um, you all should have my email address. In the meantime, please join us again next month on <laughs> August the 18th when we will be um, joined by Sam Nurko and Julie Snyder from Boston Children's hospital, and we'll be discussing pain-predominant um, DGBIs in pediatric patients. So it should be another really good session. So please plan to join us then. Thanks for being with us tonight, and we'll see you all real soon, everyone. Take good care. Bye now. Bye. Thank you, Thank you everyone. again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.